welcome. Oh, you're waving at me. <laughs> I'm talking to the listener, of course. Oh. <laughs> welcome to the the nice nineteenth episode. <laughs> you didn't like that one either. I did like that one. I laughed. Oh. I smiled. Okay. Usually I, I of... groan. <laughs> right. But that's the sign that you did like it. I sort of did a bit well. of a. Uh, I sort of pulled out the wickedly talented. Uh. Just <laughs> something I love to talk about anytime it might come up. Uh, but of course, this is the nice 19th episode of Got the Runs, the podcast that has all the sexual chemistry of a uh... bisected dog in the sewers, <laughs> a painting of Abraham Lincoln, uh, uh. <laughs> a book of the war. But of course, this is, uh, we're talking Brian K. Vaughn, as we are wont to do for nigh upon these 10 episodes now. That can't be right. It is right. Wow. Episode 10, Swamp Thing. Wow, remember that? Oh, sure do. He's come a long way. (laughs) (laughs) Baby. (laughs) But we are talking about a different book, not the Swamper, not even the Ultimate X-Men that we discussed last week. It's this week that we will start i so you have identified this as your favorite comic is that true my favorite brian k vaughn comic okay uh by by my recollection and so far so good (laughs) no spoilers save it for the pod (laughs) but we are discussing ex machina brian k vaughn's i one of his opuses i suppose is the best way to put it yeah there was definitely uh an era i guess it was mostly while ex machina was still running but there was a period where he was like the why runaways ex machina guy yeah and he was so there's some overlap where he's doing ultimate x-men right yeah i in fact i think that his first issue of ultimate x-men came out the month before the first issue of ex machina which seems crazy to me because yes. uh ex machina is better <laughs> in my opinion well it's also like at that point he's writing four books i saw yeah. some review that's like the thing that's most impressive about not only him writing four books but writing four books that feel very distinct from each other is very interesting and this does it it does have some very bkv isms but it does Certainly. feel distinct from his other stuff which we will get into yep but we're talking Ex Machina, the first 16 issues today. Uh, issue number one, cover dated August 04. And the first surprise, right off the bat, this is a Wildstorm joint. <laughs> oh, absolutely it is. This is, a, this is a Wildstorm joint. He's back at, well, I was about to say he's back home at DC, but that's not true because I don't believe that DC has yet no, they have. Bought out. Oh, they have? So there you go. He's back at DC, back in the pocket uh, where he began it all with Swamp Thing. Yeah, it is a Wildstorm joint. I don't know. Does that surprise you? Well, I just, I think of, I don't know what I think of Wildstorm. I think of Wildstorm also. It is, I think they, I... they do, like, of all the image studios, because Wildstorm was originally, like, Jim Lee's image studio, right. basically. It has, I think, the most, like, shared universe stuff. And there was, like, a distinct, like, Wildstorm universe at one point. So it is kind of weird sometimes to run into a Wildstorm book that is not part of the Wildstorm universe and not part of, like, Alan Moore's sort of, like, insular little America's Best Comics circle. Right. I think I was also maybe conflating it with Milestone Comics. Oh yes, very and, very different thing. And what's the what's the universe that they have? The Dakotaverse. Right, the Dakotaverse. I think I might have conflated it with that, but this is like so there's 
Okay, what is there in Wildstorm? There's like I know there's a Gen thirteen. <laughs> there's Gen thirteen. There's Wildcats is right. uh, is one of the big ones. Um, like the Authority yeah. is in that universe as well. Planetary, I guess technically like Grifter and Sleeper, which Sounds is like kind of like a Grifter spinoff. Today. Oh boy! <laughs> let me take a let me take a scroll down my uh, shelf here and see. Um. Those are those are the big ones that stick out to me as part of like the shared universe. Uh, I guess uh, Stormwatch would have been like the precursor to the Authority, which also is in that universe. Well, yes, famously around this time, everyone was it was in- incredibly important to respect yes. the Authorita. <laughs> uh, um, yes. But so so at this point, so it started as like basically just like an image imprint, and just it was just like jim lee yeah image was like the publisher but then all of the founders had kind of like their own studios and this like this system is still kind of in place like for example robert kirkman runs skybound which is his like studio at image um where like image is the publisher for all of the skybound titles but he and several other creators all like produce work for skybound which is then published by image right and then like rob rob liefeld had like awesome comics i think todd mcfarlane technically had something as well even more awesome comics (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, so and then so at some point it comes over to dc and then at this point it seems like i was looking at the titles they were publishing and it seems like at this point it was like it's all the Wildstorm like universe stuff, and then also it's just like an imprint for creator owned titles. Yeah, it, well, like it was always kind of creator owned titles. Yeah, I, it's it's a little like kind of sketchy at this point. It's it, like sounds like what, a freaking political system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, astute observation. Um, I get a little confused with books around this time because, like, the image guys. And, and like the launch of image for all that it was like a creator rights and like creator ownership thing. I'm not always clear on like who owns what. Like, for example, Alan Moore published a bunch of stuff through Wildstorm via his own imprint, which was America's Best Comics. But then some of that stuff now is owned by DC. And like, like, for example, he wrote Tom Strong, which was kind of like a Doc Savage pastiche of like pulp stories published through Wildstorm, but now DC, like, has had Tom Strong appear in, like, DC comics. But League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which he also originally published through Wildstorm, he, like, retained the rights to and did, like, a bunch more stories after leaving Wildstorm. So I'm all, I I get, like, a little fuzzy and even stuff like Ex Machina, sometimes I'm like, wait, who owns the rights to Ex Machina? Because there's these situations where it's like, well, it was a Wildstorm book, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was creator-owned entirely right and now wildstorm is are they they're oh it's still with dc right they're like basically defunct right um, but they, they did like a, a they i think they did like sort of attempted revival or something like that yeah during the new 52 they folded like most of the wildstorm universe characters into the like main dc universe and then they've kind of tried to revisit them sort of in the same way that like sometimes the charlton characters uh get like lumped together the the characters who inspired the the watchman cast they'll sometimes be like grouped together for things to be like hey it's like watchmen they'll sort of do that with wildstorm stuff occasionally but it's still set like in the dc universe 
but I think I think the nail is probably in the coffin on that one because Warren Ellis was really leading that charge and then subsequently was accused of like grooming a bunch of young women uh, who he was a mentor to in their like early careers. So uh, he's <sighs> he's keeping a low profile these days and so is Wildstorm as a result. Right. Well, I mean, hopefully they'll find the courage to bring back Wetworks. <laughs> a great name for a comic if nothing uh-huh, else uh-huh. global frequency that was one as well i'm sure i'm sure the back of the my trades here probably advertise a bunch of stuff let's world see world of warcraft plug. comics four women silent dragon global frequency there it is yes four women to live quality's masterpiece uh wait <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we'll leave that for another day. We'll leave that for our <laughs> To Live Quali miniseries. Can't wait to talk Black Star. No, just as comics. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so so let's talk Ex Mach. Does that rhyme? I think it does. Um, so the, like, the thing about... Uh, well, it's, again, it's credited as being co-created by Brian K. Vaughan and Tony Harris. Yes. Pencils every main line issue right yeah he pencils he pencils all 50 of the main issues i think he does the specials as well no, other people do the no. specials okay there's like one page that he doesn't pencil that we'll talk about when we get there yes i saw it's... the credit on that and i'm very interested later on in the series he'll also become the the inker he'll start inking his own stuff around issue 40 and and yeah he's credited as the co-creator i think it's like hard to gauge his role but it sounds like it was like probably fairly major because I was reading their their kind of discussions about the origins of the series. So Vaughn hey, submitted don't. like a <laughs> yeah. Vaughn... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm derailed. Uh, Vaughn submitted a one page outline of his proposal to Wildstorm, and it was like working with an editor, and he was like, "I want a Tony Harris type." So in his telling of it, they eventually were just like, why don't we just ask Tony Harris? In Tony Harris's telling of it, he was pitching his own creator-owned series to to Jim Lee, and he was like, we're not going to do it because we don't think it's marketable, but like, we'd love to have you work on one of our books. Here's like a few pitches that we are going to like be going forward with. And he read the X Machina pitch and was like, I need to do this. But so the original like plan, like Vaughn had a sort of like loose design in mind for Mitchell's, uh, Mitchell Hundred, the main characters, um, superhero persona, the great machine, which was like a very classic superhero design with like tights and a cape, um, which I think in a future issue we will see, uh, we will see something along those lines. Um, and Tony Harris like completely redesigned it to what's in the book, which is like very, like steampunky slash like a little gimpy yes. <laughs> his, his zipper mask is <laughs> the, the, the black mask really he's, he's got a little bit of a leather daddy aesthetic <laughs> it's undeniable but like yeah much more practical and and when you think about like so if he was wearing a cape he must not have had the jetpack which becomes like a huge like I, I think I think seeing the changed design really reconceptualized the character for Vaughn. Um, so it's yeah, it's hard to say when it when they started like working together at such an early stage and and being on the outside like oh this person did these things and this person did these things. But yeah, Tony Harris has talked about his collaboration with Brian K. Vaughn as being like the best of his career. 
which is like his signature work is a collaboration on Starman with James Robinson. So that's kind of like a big, uh, a big statement. And I think similarly to how he worked with Gera on Why the Last Man, it was like a very, a very back and forth process. And he had a lot of input on kind of like the characterization of the, the cast and things like that. Right. And also very, very good art. Yeah, uh, he's unreal. <laughs> <laughs> like he's, I, I feel quite confident to say that he's the the best artist that Vaughn has ever worked with. Although Fiona Staples, who we'll meet in Saga and Clint, well, yeah, he's he's Vaughn has had the privilege of working with a lot of very good artists, and I think that his collaboration with Tony Harris is his best. Yeah, it looks very good. It almost, um, I haven't read. Is it is it Criminal or there's some book that this reminds me of, especially like I like during the Fortune Teller. Is she like how everyone sort of like shaded, like the way he sort of like does darkness and like ha- having shadows cast across people's faces and stuff mm-hmm. reminded me of like sort of like true crime books in a way. But the big thing with him that I noticed is like he's really good at gestures, which is a weird yeah. thing that like is not very common in comic books. But like he can like if someone is like waving their arms around or so if someone is like pounding their fist or something like I feel like he's just very good at illustrating the the gesticulations and the yeah his his style is like extremely heavily photo referenced like he i read an interview with him where he compared himself to norman rockwell in terms of how he stages his panels i'm gonna hold up the uh some of the back matter from the first trade which shows the whole process from like reference photos to the finished pages and you'll see like the (laughs) the photos of like actual people um you know interacting with props and doing the the poses in question and then moving on to like the the pencils and the finished art like part of the reason that he's able to capture um the gestures and like the body language so effectively is that like he actually stages real people and like poses out every or almost every panel so yeah, I think I think that that has a lot of benefits, including like an actual genuine diversity of faces. Like he definitely does not suffer from like the same face syndrome that we talk about with some artists, because all of his characters he's modeling on like his neighbors. <laughs> basically, it's really funny. He talks about like developing series, and he's like, "Yeah, I went to uh, the local Christmas party, and uh, I had been talking with Brian about Ex Machina, so I started casting." <laughs> talks about like going up to people at at like the neighborhood Christmas party and being like, "Hi, I'm Tony. I'm an artist. Um, I'm working on a comic book series. Would you be cool with like a few hours a week coming and shooting photos with me for reference?" But yeah, like like almost every character is being portrayed by a real person, so you get like a true you can actually like distinguish people from each other which is important in a comic where like most people are just wearing suits right <laughs> like a diversity of body types as well and then like the dynamism in the in the um like body language and and all that stuff as well if i have a complaint about it it's that sometimes people's expressions are a little wonky there's there's times where people are a little cross-eyed or or making a face that's like just a little unusual to see uh rendered in in comic form but right. for the most part i think he's quite successful yes i would agree with that yeah i mean we can talk about the the cover does he do the covers as well he does do the covers because the cover of issue one is kind of weird because the suit doesn't quite look like it does after the fact i mean especially like the helmet in particular is very straight like it looks very bulky 
whereas like I think it gets I mean it's still like sort of like it looks like it was like originally like a flight suit helmet or whatever originally right. but it does look weird on the cover and I was like this is what he looks like because <laughs> I think my conception of the character is like the like the first hundred days collection has like yeah. that picture of it where it's like it's it's a lot more streamlined even though it is you know it has a bulk to it and yes you're holding it up now <laughs> it's an interesting costume as you've already mentioned yeah he he said he wanted to basically make it look like something that an actual like you know a guy who yes. is a civil engineer in his 30s could put together on his own without having like access to anything that wouldn't be at like an army surplus store and like no budget to speak of yes and it does it definitely looks like like you can see the pieces and how they're like cobbled together in that way yeah. which is cool. Well, while also still looking um, like cohesive and uh, and like it's a it's a great design. It, he looks awesome. Yes, it looks it looks like a costume without looking like like you know you see that a lot. Like I don't know, like in like the Dark Knight is a good example, I guess, of mm-hmm. like the the hockey pads guys. Yeah, where it's like this is cobbled together, but also like it looks bad because it's supposed to look bad. <laughs> Whereas yes. I think it sort of strikes a balance between the two. Yes, although uh, like also. So we get we get kind of his version of the hockey pads in later the comic shop guy who pretends to be an automaton and <laughs> makes a better costume. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say makes a better costume, but I was like, wait a second, <laughs> how did this small business owner get a, a costume that lets him get shot like point blank in the chest and just be like, aha? <laughs> well, to be fair, we all know he ordered it from a cosplay designer. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. Mitchell Hundred also has that material and has a jacket made out of it. Yeah, as we but see he's at got point. he's got the the thing of like he has like these dreams basically for, as a result of his powers that like kind of like right. download blueprints and like designs and like I can buy that like he's developed some sort of like polymer <laughs> or or something that he knows how to make uh, in like a cost effective way in the same way that like he makes his jetpack and his ray gun. Whereas, again, later the comic shop owner <laughs> has access to uh, a cosplay costume designer. And his name's Leto, which, you know, makes you think of Jared. Um, but speaking of the blueprint, this is a book about 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, undeniably. Did you know that going in? Um, I don't think I was quite as cognizant of it. I mean, like, I looked at the Wikipedia article before I jumped in so like and you get that like pretty up top that it's very explicitly i mean like why is also like a very 9-11 book as well yes um in different ways like i think that why uh, is more about sort of like the street level feel of it that like everything is like falling down and falling apart and stuff yeah. whereas this is more about it's really more about the aftermath of 9-11 i would say like it's exploring like the morality of politics and like casting politicians as like figures of heroism or as like arbiters of morality yeah and like it's it's very much more explicitly about 9-11 both in terms of like the plot beats where obviously like the big concept of it and the big issue one reveal is that he saved (laughs) one of the towers so so obviously that puts 9-11 like front and central in a way that it's and not. he's also the mayor of New York City. And he also is the mayor of New York City <laughs> with his term starting in 2002. So it's like, obviously, it's about 9-11. Uh, but also, uh, like you're saying, very thematically about 9-11 and like the world 
the world that arose uh, in America in particular, obviously. Yes, um, and also 9-11. Yeah, and his power being like control over electronics almost feels like allusions to that. Like, I mean, like the Patriot Act, man. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, like sort of that idea of like control over that sphere. Um, now, do you know about the movie? I so I know that <laughs> I know that because like this is such a good story. Like why the last man it has been in development hell basically since like the first issue came out. I know that it was at New Line for a while, and I know that currently it is like supposedly being produced and starred in by Oscar Isaac under right. the working title "The Great Machine." <laughs> yes, the big thing because is he was already an Xbox. They have to say, <laughs> no, not that Xbox in a movie starring Oscar Isaac, <laughs> which I am very obsessed with. Mm-hmm. But shall we? Shall we get into the meat of the thing? I yes, feel like this do, is do let. I feel like this is more like why. I mean, also because like I agree with you that this is really good spoilers. So I feel like we can go sort of more storyline by storyline as we did uh, in those books. Um, so I, as you said, my the fourth bullet point I have in my notes is in all caps the one twin tower. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. It's not. It's not like a remember me level reveal, but it definitely <laughs> is supposed to be like a turn the page and like, <gasps> which like I'm sure in 2004, like the image of one twin tower standing uh, must have like hit different. I feel like, I mean, that's looking, still a great reveal in my. It opinion. is a great reveal. I feel like looking back when I first read it as like a Canadian in like 2010 or 2011, I like barely even registered like i got his dialogue was saying like i saved one of the twin towers but i didn't realize that i was like looking at (laughs) the twin tower for some reason yeah but Um, but it is it's a great like you know we we said previously especially in why that his like last uh, last page is like the like mayor vaughn's office (laughs) um and certainly like yeah the the one twin tower standing is like peak Vaughn as far as like putting something on the last page to get you to come and read the next issue. <laughs> yes. And also like sort of like melt because I mean a lot of this book is about like melding real I mean I guess you couldn't call 9-11 pop culture but like mm-hmm. world events. World events, yeah. And like melding that into the world of the book. So that's like 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 you say, very peak. Um speaking of peak Brian K. Vaughn, around page two or three we get, you know, <laughs> Mayor LaGuardia once read comics over the radio to New Yorkers. Yeah, <laughs> which I, is just I, so. <laughs> within five pages, you're gonna get a Brian K. Vaughn is back, baby. Uh, Google is alive and well. Yeah, I I don't know why I find it much more tolerable in this book most of the time. I think in part because it's it's less often put in in the form of either, "Hey, did you know?" or actually <laughs> right like those are those are the two times or his two habits where it really sticks out when he's like just dropping a little trivia tidbit is if the dialogue starts with either did you know or actually <laughs> yes the, both, the, like both cutting guaranteed to make me like roll my eyes about whatever's about to come next yes cutting to the start of a new scene and having like often like characters who aren't even like we haven't shown their faces yet mm-hmm. but it's like them saying did you know this yeah, which I think I, did, is how did you know Elvis as well. Had, did you know Elvis had a twin brother? Is a gr- is a good like I'll I'll stand behind that one. 
that's pretty much the only one that I feel good to be like, no, that's a good setup, like done well. Yes. And then and so the other thing that that quote alludes to is the fact that he's a big fan of comic books, yes, which is comic characters read comics. Of course, we all know this. Yes, which is something you've brought up several times. But again, I think makes a little more sense because it's about like a guy ostensibly in the real world who becomes a superhero. And yeah. so I, I feel like it's and, like... And who learned about what it means to be like a good guy and a hero from comic books. It's... It, yeah, more way more so than like, like Yorick did not need to be <laughs> right. a comic book reader. It makes a lot more sense and like ties in more nicely thematically for 100 to be a comic book reader. Right. And plus we get to get his lawyer who is Clark Kent? <laughs> Question mark. True. I feel like he's in costume as Clark Kent every time he appears. He really is. Like he he's wearing like a very like he's wearing a crazy yeah, like, suit. And he's I feel wearing like he's like, wearing like a hat. Yeah, Christopher Reeve suit from Superman like the movie. Yes. Another BKVism that you get pretty early on is when he's meeting the what's the name of the deputy mayor? Riley. Uh, Dave Wiley. Wiley. <laughs> Whoops. The whole thing where it's like the the story about how he like fell out of the plane because he wasn't wearing the seatbelt, yeah, yeah. and then and then like so ha- bringing that up and then capping the scene with "buckle up" is a very like Brian K. Vaughn school of scene writing <laughs> in a way that I like. <laughs> yeah, but but again, it's like how like how many people <laughs> are going to walk through this comic and know things like the last person to be mayor of New York City under the age of 35 died in World <laughs> War One because he was a fighter pilot and fell out of his plane because he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. But it's also like, like maybe it's a... relevant to our conversation. <laughs> but also like possibly a New York City councilman who yeah. would want to be a deputy mayor. Like kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. And, we... and it, like, I also don't mind that he, like, Mitchell Hundred is, is often dropping, like, tidbits about New York City because he's, like, a very dedicated civil engineer who is, like, obsessed with New York City. So it, like, yeah, again, it makes it makes a bit more sense to me that he has, like, all this no- weird knowledge of, like, what things in New York used to be or, like, this historic thing happened here. Yes, everyone being civil servants is, uh, is a nice in <laughs> for him. Does it, does it hurt? Yeah. <laughs> So the first, so the the general, at least as far as we've gotten in the book, the general way that the arcs sort of get laid out is that there are two problems. There's like a civil, like mayoral problem. Yeah. And then there's also usually there's a murderer of some (laughs) description. And usually connected in some way to his his brief career as the great machine. Yes, we maybe we should. I mean, I hopefully people will have read it by now. You should read it if you haven't already. But the general idea is Mitchell Hundred, just not, not a great name. I will say. Yeah. Okay. I, I I feel like he was named this specifically because he was like, well, at some point I'm going to talk about the first hundred days, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which like famously uh, the like truism is that that is like the period right. during which politicians are able to accomplish the most is the first hundred days of their term. Right. But other than that, like the fact that he's like, of course, I'm a 13th generation American and my ancestors named themselves after the Brandywine hundred area where they settled. And by the way, I also know the name of the captain of the mayflower (laughs) and i'm going to drop it and then also clarify that that's the name of the captain of the mayflower because i know that most people don't know that and most unfortunately of all my name is mitchell (laughs) a name i just don't (laughs) think is a good 
comic book character name and like Mitch Apologies for short. Apologies to the Mitchells out there. Well, no, I I sit behind a Mitchell in class. I he's a great guy, but mm-hmm. not not a name I really think of as a comic book character name. And also just like yeah, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. But yeah, so so in the first arc, which is called State of Emergency, the gen- the thing that gets sort of plotted out is that the two problems are this painting of Abraham Lincoln, as we've alluded to earlier, <laughs> which is hanging in the Brooklyn Art Museum uh, with the N-word written on it, <laughs> done by a white artist. With dreads. With dreads. Um, and then also there is someone murdering snowplow drivers. Yes. It's... Uh, I... So... <laughs> <laughs> I had this arc in mind early on, like, like it's one of the arcs I remember very clearly, particularly like the art side of it, that I was like, can't wait to <laughs> to talk through this one. I forgot that it was the first arc. <laughs> that it's yes, like, it's very early on. You get one one issue of setup that establishes the basic premise. Right. Oh, like, yeah. Wait, we were talking about the premise. Oh, yeah. So the, the basic premise is this, like average joe civil engineer mitchell hundred is called on to explore a mysterious glowing object under the brooklyn bridge it blows up in his face uh imbuing him with the power to communicate with machines i did a (laughs) i did quite a dive trying to figure out what exactly the extent of that was according to vaughn it has to involve like two machine parts to be a yes. complex enough machine for him to communicate with. So his example was, if you've got a pulley, he can't talk to it. But if you turn the pulley with a crank, he can talk to it. And so, yeah, he can he can talk to machines. They can talk to them. He's got quite pervasive power over them and enjoys a brief, like, I think just over a year career as a superhero during which his reception is mixed and in particular like the city officials are not a big fan of his and he decides to retire as a superhero and parlay his reputation into a political career he is like a distant last (laughs) in the mayoral race uh, until 9-11 happens he suits back up and saves tower two follow with like subsequently wins the mayoral election in a landslide and then we start on like january 9th so he's been in office for like barely a week right which is it's also like pretty clearly well maybe not clearly wait so this oh it starts in 2004 so the 2004 election has yes. happened which is an election i believe i mean we're showing our non-american this year but i believe bush wins very handily because like he has post 9/11 goodwill more or less. Yes. Uh let me see here. Uh, it was it was uh, fairly in fact, it, was, it was fairly close. In fact, uh, our first scene you're talking about when he's talking to the jetpack? Uh I'm talking about the 2004 presidential election. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? But, uh, well, I'm asking see oh, you're talking about like the comic debuted in 2004 or the the yes. first scene of the comic takes place in 2004. Yes, I'm talking about the comics debuting. Okay, yeah, the comic does debut in 2004. Right. But generally, I, I think what I'm thinking of is that, like, Bush's approval rating was, like, extraordinarily high and, like, maybe yeah. the highest ever. He's, like, he's in... still uh, riding that uh, that goodwill, certainly. Yeah, so I think that is sort of where he gets the idea from. Uh, it might be Now might be a good time to mention that, so after he does, like, his first mission where there are people riding on the subway yes. and he shuts down <laughs> the subway system for 11 hours, there is a... Uh, like a very 
negative story on him published by the daily wire (laughs) (laughs) yes well i do that's a that's a funny bit he like pulls two guys off a subway and then uses his powers to stop a subway train that is about to run one of them over and then flies off saying tell everyone you've been saved by the great machine i'm here to help and then the next page is like a full splash of the front page of the daily wire the next day which is crazed wingman cripples subways for 11 hours or something like that yes i'm not sure if ben shapiro had any involvement in this story being written (laughs) i just thought it was very strange that the newspaper like the sensationalist tabloid newspaper is called the daily wire i'm not is it the sensationalist daily newspaper because i thought that was uh the voice which is the one that that suzanne padillo works for well allow me to read you the headlines the other headlines at the top please do (laughs) which i am just have just noticed for the first time now i'll save the best for last but it's at the top the first one is cold snap colon winter ain't over till the fat lady sings and but the the top of the tops is with three exclamation marks rim job colon tidy bowl killer leaves another floater (laughs) ah good stuff which is just a great bit (laughs) but yes so this this is all the backdrop to he's now mayor and frequent like the, the general structure of the stories is that we get flashbacks between the events of his superhero career sometimes those are like directly related to what is happening uh, during the like present day stuff which is usually more focused on the political side of things and sometimes they're just related thematically or kind of fleshing out his history uh, or character right and so this is what i did not realize about the book i think like so i thought the conceit of the book was that like it's it's a mayor who's a superhero Whereas it's more about like a former superhero who becomes the mayor. I mean, he does. Wait, have we? Do we see him suit up in the present at any point up to now? I don't think so, right? Uh, no, we don't. It's hard. It's sometimes hard to remember because we flash across timelines so frequently, but. Yeah, in in the second issue, he is like very explicitly like threatened by his police commissioner that if she finds out that he has used his powers to prevent a crime, other than in like a dire emergency situation, like any situation that could be handled by the police, if she finds out that he used his powers to intervene, she's going to arrest him. And so subsequently, we don't really see him ever suit up in the present day, uh, and and usually the uh, like superhero side of things has to be handled either by like a law enforcement agency or his two sidekicks from his superhero days bradbury who is now like his security chief and kremlin the like kindly coney island mechanic who (laughs) (laughs) was like his his mentor kind of like old close family father figure and yeah father figure is a good uh, a good way to put it and now is like estranged from him because he thinks that uh he is wasting his life by being the mayor (laughs) (laughs) good bit another thing that starts pretty early on is the crazy dream sequences which i think so yeah this i so i i recalled that like the extra dimensional stuff right because that's like what a factor sort of, in this comic yes that's what gets alluded to fairly early on i don't remember which uh issue yeah it was exactly. i was surprised how how early it starts because i was prepared to kind of like pussyfoot around it during this discussion because i thought it didn't really come up until later 
but in fact the illusions start like quite early <laughs> yeah the one the big thing that that i can think of so far is when he's having dinner with the reporter he talks about stars are down <laughs> yes the nirvana song that doesn't exist yes uh, which has which is like the piece of they call it shrapnel a lot yeah there's like a shard from the explosive that gave him his powers that has like this weird symbol on it. Yes. And the big thing like sort of linked to his idea, the idea of his powers being power over electronics is that like it's like broadcasting frequencies. Yes. And I think the idea is that is if you tune a radio in basically. Yeah, like, tune it was it into... like so his like NSA handler had like a transistor radio in his garage. And while he was like experimenting with the piece of shrapnel it started picking up this broadcast implied to be from another dimension right so it's a it's a nirvana song that was never written by nirvana but as far as we can tell like is like yeah a nirvana he like song. he like ran it through like a voice analyzer that was like it's kurt cobain <laughs> hi it's kurt cobain <laughs> hi it's me kurt cobain <laughs> this is not <laughs> and yet it's our favorite bit <laughs> Hey guys, it's Kurt Cobin. Yeah, I'll, we can we can talk about it more when we get to the tag arc. But uh, yeah, I was surprised yes. how much of the like interdimensional stuff started very very early on. But let's get back to uh, Bleep Lincoln, uh, yes. as it's colloquially referred to. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what do you think? think? Who's right? The museum curator, <laughs> the <laughs> journal. Uh, who who's got the right take on this piece? Um, well, I mean, we sort of get a reveal, which I think is a clever sort of way to go about it, which is like, is, I think, more clever than I was than I expected the book to be when I saw the the initial premise (laughs) of (laughs) it's a painting of Lincoln with the N word scrawled over it. Yeah, there is a part of me that's like, kind of kind of a good idea like thought-provoking question mark yes well like the yes the explanation that is given is the idea that by it's the, like by the museum curator you're talking about yes yeah which is that let me read it verbatim here through juxtaposing an image of the great emancipator with the words some whites still used to keep american blacks shackled to the past i believe the artist is reminding us that no one can deliver this country from our legacy of bigotry which Good take. I, yeah, which I think is a is a fairly reasonable take. And like would probably maybe even like I mean, it would probably just come across as heavy handed today, maybe, but yeah. I think a take that is probably more widely accepted now than it would have been at the time. But I mean, was was the Nas album a thing yet? Do you know about this? No. So there was a Nas album, and it was not a thing yet. It came out in two thousand eight. And the big thing about the album was that so it's originally titled the n-word and the photo or the cover art was him nas like facing away from the camera and on his back in like what appears to be like whip scars was Mm -hmm. the n-word and it eventually became an untitled like so there obviously there was a huge controversy Mm -hmm. and it became he eventually it became an untitled album that is sometimes referred to as a self-titled album. And the photo, the cover art is just him. And the same sort of, the idea of the pose is sort of done the same, but it's just a large N on his back rather than the full right. word. So that's what I instantly thought of, which is like basically <laughs> almost the same idea in a lot of ways. Yeah. And and of course, the two art references that are made are to Piss Christ, which is uh, a very famous piece of like a crucifix submerged in urine. 
um and sensation which was like a giuliani thing <laughs> like a few, it like happened in like 2001 or 2000 question mark but an art exhibit that like appeared to be like a a very beautiful rendering of of mary but like in fact she was like coated in elephant dung and the like what appeared to be cherubim flying around her when you got close were ovaries question mark or like some 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 piece of female reproductive anatomy depicting virgin mary as a black woman made of elephant dung and set oh, she's against made of elephant dung apparently so set against a shimmering gold background replete with women's buttocks cut from pornographic magazines <laughs> there you go <laughs> and this is this is also at the brooklyn museum so i imagine yes, that this yeah. is much more directly the sort of the thing that he is referencing here yes well, and he name drops it specifically when when Hundred goes to see it, and she's like, "We don't want another sensation, right?" And and as uh, as Mitchell puts it, he says, "Well, he can't even say." He says, "Is she, you know, <laughs> asking if the artist is black?" To which the this is a very funny <laughs> scene. And, yes, I mean, like, and it's like it's kind of surprising extremely how hard. well this scene plays today. Like. <laughs> Uh, to which she replies, I think creators of all colors have a responsibility to appropriate taboo <laughs> phrases for hate mongers. It's like, so no. <laughs> yeah. to, which, to which she replies, oh fuck, that means she is white. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, like, that probably would not be the take. Well, I mean, maybe it would be for some people, but. I definitely think that, that there's still, like, uh, a branch of, like, liberalism that would be, like, that that would stand behind we that, all have sure. this responsibility yes. yeah um but probably today we would be more inclined to say that <laughs> it would be more of uh they should the, be it would be more appropriate for a black a domain, artist yeah explored than, by a black artist yes uh <laughs> so this is a very interesting i don't know plot line or yeah so that's it's like it, i mean it's almost the a plot i would say in this it, story it is the a plot <laughs> it's it is funny the extent to which like it is more a politics book than a superhero book most of the time yes it's very it's very political and like very so something that someone sort of mentioned to me just sort of offhandedly was the idea that is is this book like is this book actually good or were we just giving it credit at the time for like talking about things that weren't being talked about in comics at the time and i didn't even really think of it as like in like terms of as a contemporary comic, this must have been even more, like, sort of trend-setting. <laughs> yes, or, like, yeah. yes, like, maybe yeah, shocking It's, it's like right hitting word, all but... the... It's it's funny to read it now. It's almost quaint that there's, like, a major story arc about gay marriage and, like, there's a, there's going to be a, a storyline down the line, no spoilies, about legalizing weed or, like, mandatory minimum sentencing for weed or something like that. And to read it now, it's, like, almost cute <laughs> that, like, oh, they were debating it. <laughs> <laughs> well, not too cute. Not too cute, but it, it does feel very, like, quaint and, and very, like, not that these issues are gone, but that, like, it's just from a very different era of discourse around them. Yes, but, but I also, like, I think, broadly speaking, like, the takes are fairly, fairly thoughtful, like, and... Like sort yeah, of are, are are approaching it from an interesting angle that aren't just like 
very like reductive early 2000s like like i don't read it and think like oh the 2000s when we like had no understanding of these issues <laughs> yeah like i just think read it and think like oh like the 2000s <laughs> yes i do i think vaughn is very deliberate about making sure that there is like a reasonable character to present like the good faith perspectives of like a broad political spectrum yeah i think is- that this is a both sides comic. It is yeah. worth saying. I also think that he's like very or fairly careful to generally not have Mitchell Hundred be his like stand-in character. Right. Like I don't think that he, especially like there's there's a couple minor things that get brought up, like um, indoor smoking bans and school vouchers, and like uh, there will be uh, there's a, there's like a part on the war on terror that is coming down the pipeline where. Like, in some cases, I think you can probably guess what his personal view is. But I definitely think that, like, 100 is not always just espousing what Vaughn believes. Yes, because the big thing is that Mitchell runs as an independent because, as is pointed out very early on, like, Bloomberg has the (laughs) Republican vote locked up, Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg, and, like, the Democratic field is too crowded for him to get in. Mm-hmm. So he runs as an independent and then wins. And like, so the idea is like very, it's going to be is, bipartisan. Yeah, it's going to be preaching bipartisan. Yeah. Shit. I'm focused on the issues, not the, not the like party line. Yes. And the big, I like, want to stop the disnification of New York city. <laughs> yes. And also I'm tough on crime. I'm I like tough on crime. Two big things. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. So going back to the, the painting, it is, uh, what's the, is it tr- Trista is the name Trista of Braving, the, yes. Is the name of the artist. And so basically what it eventually turns out to be, which is revealed by Journal, who is this intern in his in yeah, promoted <laughs> intern. Yes, who becomes the special advisor on youth affairs, who basically essentially sees it for what it is, is what we're meant to believe. Yeah. Which is that she sort of so this this is an artist who like starts out getting a bunch of recognition and then sort of like has a slump as she as both journal and presumably the artist feels uh but like gets even more glowing reviews and then the ne- her next thing was sort of like being hostile towards critics but gets even more rapturous reviews and so now she's like done the most like outlandish thing that she can think of and also like very like and we 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 understand that it is intentionally meant to be like cliche and sort like, of like uh, over the like top. lincoln's in paris it's provocative and meant to get the people going <laughs> please do not use lincoln's as a standard <laughs> uh yeah as as journal puts it when the time came for 30 under 30 you submitted the most inane hateful piece of cliched taboo you could imagine just so you wouldn't have to endure their empty praise again which i like you know i don't think that's entirely like it's not that inane i mean it's a little inane maybe but it's it's not the subtlest piece of work you've ever seen, <laughs> <no>. certainly. <laughs> but you know, it's a it's a piece of work. Um, and it's so, a bit like Fawn's own career in that way. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but it sort of backfires and <laughs> ends up being hung in the museum, which she is. Again, this is all journal mm-hmm. assuming these things, but I think we are meant to take it as the truth. Yes, that it is like it's embarrassing to her that it is now like being hung and that the critics are again like defending it and now that it's sort of like a topic of censorship it's almost like the art world is forced to sort of come to its defense Mm -hmm. 
And so the eventual resolution, by the way, Trista has the classic G-string on the hips. Oh, art, yeah, she sure does. The whale tail, is... I believe it's uh, <laughs> colloquially known. Sure. And so the way this eventually gets resolved is that uh, Trista herself breaks into the museum and throws water balloons full of paint or or is it blood or is it just paint? It's paint. And yes, and basically defaces her own piece of art in order to get it removed for the greater good. And so she is like sort of figured out a way around this. Although this does strike me as a thing that would be like the like shredded Banksy thing where I feel like the fact that that happened would just make people be like even better. <laughs> like I want I must have it. Yes, yeah, certainly if they if they knew that it had been the artist that had like pulled this off and also like beaten up a security guard and she she yells six temperature in us <laughs> yes, before that, she I feel like just the fact that it was Someone yelled six Emperor Tyrannus and then threw a water balloon full of paint over the painting. Which doesn't really make sense. Like, she's assassinating Lincoln, certainly. But, like, what? Like, what's the statement there? I shake my head and shrug my shoulders. <laughs> and so she, you know, beats up a, a cop and then runs off. Yes, and even in the comic, they sort of discuss that, like, what exactly were they protesting? Like, <laughs> bigotry, the mayor, Lincoln? But yes, but the B plot in this, at this going on at the same time, is these snowplow murders. Mm-hmm. So it starts with someone, one of them getting shot, and then there's a car bomb. Yes. And, so, and it's at that point, and so they begin to suspect that Kremlin is responsible for this. Well, yeah, I think it first serves as... Like, I, I think the the reason he went with this as kind of, like, the first more, like, superhero slash, like, somewhere somewhere on the trade, friend of one of the trades I have, someone described it as, like, X-Files meets West Wing, which I feel like it is surprisingly X-Files. You maybe not this particular, uh, you know, mystery, but I think he went with this one because he, A, wanted to introduce Jack Fearson, who is, like very much a presence in the comic without ever actually appearing. He's like the off-screen nemesis of the great machine who, like, I, I can't remember exactly how much we know about him at this point, but he's basically, yeah, he's he's the great machine's arch nemesis. He does not appear in... Yeah, I think that's basically all I know is that he was, like, his enemy who he, like, yeah. hunted for yeah. ages and ages. 100 believes him to be dead. Kremlin does not and and like he will be brought up quite a bit like throughout the comic as an important part of sort of the great machine story and then also to kind of like make clear the the sort of dire straits of the relationship between kremlin and hundred and the degree to which that has uh eroded especially in comparison from the flashback scenes we see of him where he is like taking care of Mitchell as a kid, taking him to the comic store, and then during his time as the Great Machine is like his his like operations manager, <laughs> like right. tra- traveling mobile ops center. Yes, him and Bradbury are basically like they're like in a van, <laughs> like they're the guys in the in the chair. Yeah, so they're to speak. Uh, they're they're quarterbacking all of the Great Machine's uh, missions. But yes, um, so so the sort of the arc of this snowplow killer is is it that mitchell or no kremlin finds mitchell right and tells him that yeah, kremlin kremlin goes to mitchell and says i think this is fearson and mitchell he also mails like, mitchell like part of his suit yeah he sends him his helmet mitchell is like no fearson is dead 
so then he like looks into it more and narrows it down to like this one guy like a a high school student uh, yeah well also like he so he begins to suspect that kremlin is behind this or like that hundred does yeah yes that's possible that kremlin is behind this because there's like a uh, force yeah he sees a video clip uh, where the suspect appears on camera and he recognizes the coat as one that kremlin also owns right and which plants the seed of doubt yes that he killed these people to force him out of retirement and like back to being a superhero essentially right. and so eventually he goes to coney island which is kremlin's like hideout where he area. lives under the cyclone question mark and sweeps the boardwalk it's i'm not clear what he does because at the end of issue one it seems like he is like a construction worker on the new the new world trade center but then also he lives at coney island and like is the mechanic there yeah certainly that was his job at one point i think you know well this, this also starts during winter so you know but yes yeah off so they season. eventually they go to <laughs> yes coney island off season so they go to <laughs> confront kremlin who basically is like i already figured out who it was for you and like called it in yeah but is ob- obviously very hurt by this potential accusation Yes. And then, so the actual, like you said, the actual kid is this high school student, which I felt like was a very, very strange resolution to it's this a, story. It's, it's very, like, I think kind of Columbine adjacent. I think he's supposed to be, like, a sort of, like, school shooter type, as it were. He's like right. this. He's like this angry nerd who has like killed these snowplow drivers because they're in the middle of this huge snowstorm and it is like effectively shutting down the city. And his motivation, as he explains it, is basically like, now all those kids who picked on me, I'm going to be a legend because I shut down school for three days. Yeah, which just does not. It doesn't really ring true to me. I mean, obviously, uh, like, yeah, it's deranged, certainly. <laughs> yes, which you know is. Obviously, this whoever is murdering snowplow drivers is not going to be entirely well, but like it seems like a somewhat flimsy justification for like car bombing a snowplow driver. Like it just seems like so much work to go to rather yeah. than just like shooting someone. I don't I don't know what uh, solution would have like been satisfying. It's it, I'm like kind of fine with it, I guess. Yeah, it's just very strange to me that, like, this idea gets revealed, like, you know, five pages before, and then we just see the raid happen, and then he kills himself, and that's essentially the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the big thing that sort of jumps out to me in these early arcs is the plotting. Like, it feels very TV-ish to me, and I'm not sure if that's, like, because he is... He's not working in TV at this point, is he? I th- I don't think so, but he will like soon be working on Lost. Right. And so maybe it's, you know, it's a chicken and egg situation for sure. But it, it feels to me like he is sort of like showing off why he would have appealed to TV people because of like the way he like sort of plots these arcs out and can have multiple plot lines going at the same time. And also like the sort of there's a lot of like there's a lot of walk and talks in this book. Yeah, certainly. And a lot of scenes that, like, are staged and play out in ways that are very similar to how a TV episode would play out. 
I think it's it's a combination of like as we've discussed, he's like a trained screenwriter who came through like NYU's film school um, as a writer, and then a combination of that with like I think that like West Wing is an influence on this, just in terms of like the like the walk and talks, the like yes, the the I I think it's it's very kind of like in the air of this comic, even if it's not like obviously like the i can't remember the president's name but the white house of uh of the west wing yeah the bartlett white house and the uh and the like uh, i guess like the political motivation and political view of america that is present in the west wing is different from what's presented in uh in this book like they have different objectives but i do think that the style of it is influential yeah and i I also think that maybe and you know it's not like he only works on hasn't worked on superhero books up to this point by any means but Mm -hmm. i think that the melding works well because like the field of politics sort of plays with the same thing like that happens a lot in superhero comics which is like sort of no good deed goes unpunished is like the the classic it's like a very spider-man thing is the character i associate with the most but like it's like your actions like even if like they they seemed right at the time and they turn out to have like larger ramifications that you weren't aware of mm-hmm. or you know you go in with good intentions and end up having to do something unsavory because you like were sort of backed into a corner or you yeah. do something that's for the greater good and you suffer in yeah. your personal life as a result like i think all of those ideas like are sort of present in both and i think those are the ideas that the book plays with a lot but the, the second arc is Tag, which is what you alluded to earlier. Yeah, this is this is the one that really starts to get into the um, the kind of interdimensionality and is the most kind of superhero centered, I would say, of the three arcs that that we're covering, where the the like political storyline is about the deputy mayor Wiley's brother wants to get married to his partner and and it covers kind of the uh, decision of 100 to proceed with marrying them despite like a constitutional question about whether or not gay marriage is technically legal and whether the the kind of consequences will be worth it as far as the political cost to him the like the challenges that he will be raising for himself and for other politicians who support gay marriage around the country, the speculation into his personal life about his sexuality and whether or not he can subsequently survive re-election um, if people start assuming that he is gay. And then the the superhero storyline in both the past and present has to do with this weird symbol that is on um, the piece of shrapnel, the flashbacks telling the story of his relationship with his NSA handler, Jackson George, <laughs> um, in like the the summer pre 9-11. And right. Then- so after he's revealed himself, he sort of like he volunteers to be like vetted by any security agencies. Yeah. And he starts working quite closely with with this NSA cryptologist and becomes quite friendly with him. And they're trying to figure out, like, what's the deal with this thing that gave me my powers? And then in the present day, someone is, like, graffitiing the symbol that was on the shrapnel shard in, like, the subways. And seeing it causes people to 
uh, have like various different types of reactions where I think the main one we see is like a girl gouges out her own eyes after seeing it. Um, and then of course the villain is a person who has been affected by uh, like gazing into the abyss <laughs> that is this like Lovecraftian symbol. And, and so the FBI is like trying to work with Mitchell to apprehend whoever is responsible for this. Yes. Because there's there there's like it's a very dense. It's kind of busy, yeah. <laughs> I think because there is both the past and the present side of the tag part, because like yeah. you see the the past with Jackson, and then also the the present stuff. So like yeah, like, well they're they're coalescing to the reveal that um the when the FBI approaches Hundred originally, they're positing that Jackson is the person who's been spray painting the uh, symbol and also has like murdered his family and possibly other people. But it's driving towards the reveal that in fact, uh, it's his wife who has been doing this after she like is altered by looking at the symbol on the piece of shrapnel and subsequently like murdering Jackson uh, and going to New York to look for Mitchell. Yes. The, the one thing I did want to talk about is, very very early on so the reveal is like the first whole issue of the arc is mitchell like it's like he's like i can't see keep performing all these weddings i give all these weddings <laughs> oh boy and then deputy mayor wiley is like well my brother wants you to marry him and he's like oh i'll do it because i guess he he's a fire, alluded to yeah. a couple of times that he has sort of made this pledge that he will like do anything for any like first responder. Yeah, anything he can do to help a first responder who like worked nine eleven, he will do. Right, which is the case for his firefighter brother. But the big reveal is he wants to marry his boyfriend, and then we get a full page. Great of, push. <laughs> we get a push in on Mitchell's like very like conflicted face, and then the final page, he looks right down the barrel, like into the camera, and goes. So, and like, what I have written here is, this was probably a great bit at the time. (laughs) I do think that it probably was intended to be quite suspenseful of like, what's his stance? What's his stance? This is like, you know, uh, like potential career killer issue for a politician in the right. in the states at this time. So I do think that like the reveal of like he's gonna do it, it's <laughs> like you know another buckle up moment for like yes, it is a it is a very another funny wild reveal. ride in the <laughs> the crazy political career of uh, independent Mitchell Hundred. Yes, it's just also fun. it's just very funny to me that he's like staring into camera. It is being like... it is a crazy panel. I do like the four <laughs> the four like the full page four panel push in on him for it though yes it, it, it is as if he should be like giving a thumbs up and being like gay marriage is cool with me <laughs> like captain america at the end of his uh ultimates debut what does he say at the end uh, of his he's like debut? he's like revealed to the nation as like it's captain america the guy from world war ii he's back and they like unveil him and George W. Bush is like, so what do you think of the 21st century, Captain America? Cool or not cool? And then it like shows him in his new updated uniform, give like huge thumbs up to the camera. <laughs> and he's saying, cool, Mr. President. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> that is demented. It's, the Ultimates is a crazy comic. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Uh, not to go back to the ultimate universe truly <laughs> yeah so th- it's almost like they're they're running back a bit of like the same plot elements here where it's like 
there's a <laughs> well one thing we didn't talk about in the first arc was the assassination attempt on Mitchell, which he manages to jam by just like telling the gun to jam, which is one of the first times yes. we see his early powers. early establishment of like it doesn't have to be electronic for him to be able to work with it. Guns he can he can interact with. We also like I think yeah, it's in the last arc. Kremlin reveals, and I think it's stated more explicitly at some point in the issues we read, but Kremlin and Bradbury are both in possession of devices built by Mitchell that are supposed to like jam his powers, and he's like entrusted to them them to these two a la like Superman with a kryptonite ring to Batman being like, If I ever lose control, I need you to stop me with this. Right. And then oh, there's so much going on in this arc because also <laughs> in this arc is the journalist character, yeah, who is she first appears in the first issue, yeah, like she works is it the voice another that great, she works uh, for? Yeah, another great laugh out loud exchange for me is when she says, "No offense, uh, like I appreciate what you did for this city, but I can see why my paper didn't endorse you." He's like, "Well, no offense, but I can see why your paper is free." <laughs> it's like, good line. There's some good lines to be certain. Certainly. It's BKV, baby. It is BKV, baby. So he goes on this date, and that's when he tells the Nirvana story. Yes. To which, which she is. It's like, it's a very classic. I hate this trope, I will say, <laughs> where like they tell like the most insane story in like an incredibly serious manner. And then, they're, and then the person was just like, you're joking, aren't you? Like, I would never respond yeah. that to like and, someone and, telling And then me the something. person is like, yeah <laughs> like, i got you didn't i and it's, he he like i'm still alone with this heavy truth <laughs> who's that that's not like that's, jughead was talking about <laughs> jughead is alone with many heavy truths uh we learned all about them in jughead's time police um we should cover that we should cover oh, that oh that could that should be our next one off <laughs> jackets time police yes this is actually good <laughs> <in> my opinion <laughs> we can discuss it anyway so yes and so there is this character and the other like element of the whole gay marriage plot which you have alluded to is like this will the this and the fact that mitchell is like unattached yeah, will lead to speculation that he New is York's gay. most eligible bachelor raised like unoccurring to him until journal is kind of like, aren't you worried about what people are going to think about you, a like <laughs> fashionable single man uh, in his thirties who has no apparent reason not to be getting his, as it were. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and then yes, and so then, which is something that is at least as far as I've seen and what we've read is not revealed like what his sexuality is like whenever it comes up he's always just like i don't discuss my personal life yeah or or we get like a cutaway before we see his answer yes and yes the big one is at the end of this arc we susan asks him point blank off the record are you gay and he says can i come in and then the door closes behind him and we are not privy to the conversation that takes place uh, behind that closed door yeah i no spoilies but uh it is he never says one way or the other throughout the course of the series uh and i'm sure there's ample hints either way that uh, that we we can discuss at some point my personal take on it is that he he and he alludes to it in this conversation with her as well where he talks about how sometimes his mind makes tactical decisions before before like he has a chance to think through like the human component of it i think that his 
his like sexuality and apparent like I, w- I would say that throughout the series he's almost more asexual than anything right. and it's meant to be a kind of reflection of one of the ways in which he's been changed by the incident that gave him his powers and and we'll get into this more as like the interdimensional stuff becomes more of a factor in uh, in the comic but I, I think it is meant to have made him more like machine like, and that includes both a disregard for uh, a very like human pleasure in sex, and also in like an occasional inadvertent disregard for like the emotional consequences of the things that he does. Yes, he like basically he gets accused of being a robot at times. Yes, she does. Um, <laughs> when she realizes that he has uh, used her as a beard, she does call him a robot. Yes, and it's I think it has come up other times as well. I mean, there's, again, there's there's a lot going on. Like, there's, like, the whole subway thing. Like, they find the dead dog and then the agents who are, like, painting over the symbols. <laughs> yeah, the twin brother FBI agents. <laughs> Basically the white chicks characters. They remind me of uh, the Mahler twins from Invincible. You haven't read Invincible, but... Uh, I have not read Invincible. Yeah. I, <laughs> I love a good pair of uh, twin, uh, twin toughs. Yes, who, and then this book is extremely gnarly. One of them gets, like, his oh, eye yeah. popped out. <laughs> yes, Tony going off on that one. Um, and there's also, someone gets shot in the head at some point in this, and their eye also pops out. Oh, it's in uh, it's in the next volume. Easy Benson's eye pops out when he gets shot in the head. <laughs> I was going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to rob you of your moment. And then, yes, and then there's also, so, like, the big reveal, like, it's basically, like, everyone is under the understanding or belief that it is Jackson George, and then they go into the subway and see Jackson George's dissected body, body, much in the same way that the dog was dissected. Yeah. So, we eventually get the the full reveal here, which is that basically that, that basically Jackson has been, in fact, driven insane, more or less. but, But for different reasons. Like he's, he, he, well, at least I think, I think that his breakdown is close, like obviously tied to his failure to prevent 9-11 and like the personal responsibility that he takes for that and sees it as like, I spent all this time right before it happened, like playing like spaceman with this stupid superhero and then like thousands of people died and I could have been doing something about it. That's like the root of his breakdown, whereas his wife you know like i said stares into the abyss that is this like lovecraftian symbol and is driven mad by it yes i mean i i think it's a bit of both because it's strange to me that he was unaffected by it previously because like so his whole thing like at the time that this whole thing happens is that he's sort of like freaking out about like the possibility of like a chemical attack Mm -hmm. Uh, there's there's a conversation in a previous issue where he has like been fired from the nsa basically because he's inessential yeah and like you said basically is just like very angry about this whole thing because he feels like he could have done more and was instead you know dealing with the computer guy uh but then we see a, a, a closer something more similar to what we see with the woman on the subway in the earlier issue where she sort of like just like looks into it then loses her mind she cuts her own arm or like forearm off yeah which is also very gnarly indeed um you know kills her husband kills her daughter 
and then and her goes dog for Mitchell which, and uh, her dog. Yes, <laughs> one of the police will posit is the most horrifying crime of all. <laughs> yes, and also makes a robot hand for herself. Yes, which is another thing we and, see. And apparently, like it talks with the like block green lettering that is the signature of Mitchell communicating with machines. Yes, um, all her dialogue is. Uh, is in like hundred speak and she also like can't talk properly yes so she she says to him you didn't spread the gospel the word of the prophets are written on are written on my brain doesn't know how to say it b-r-a-i-n but it's not about the brains b-r-a-n-e-s it's about the bulk you were supposed to tell people Witten is close, but we're closer. You had one responsibility, Carpenter, and you failed. Um, so obviously there's like a certain messianic and like, you know, sense that he has a greater mission that he is not fulfilling, that he doesn't seem to know anything about. And that also includes lots of like, uh, like quantum physics, like super string theory stuff. So Witten is the name of Richard Witten, who is like the developer of M-theory, which is like a unifying <laughs> theory of like super string quantum physics, all related to like, you know, alternate dimensions, uh, like, yeah, and, and tying into this interdimensional stuff and brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, are objects with multiple dimensions uh google tells me in one of my <laughs> most entertaining sentences our universe is a three brain object <laughs> i consider myself something of a three brain object <laughs> yeah, this, this, this podcast is a three brain object we each have one and a half um but yes it's and also another thing i, I that i thought of while reading this was he sort of he sort of takes the the idea of Nico from Runaways and repurposes the like the saying things like giving commands in a thematically oh, resonant yeah, way or like in yeah. a way that's a punchline. Definitely, uh, kill yourself, of course, uh, to his jetpack. Follow the sound of my voice uh, to his jetpack. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a great rapport with uh, with Jetty. Sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, she also calls him 100. But she yes, does it's call him 100. <laughs> it's something we see in both this arc and the next arc that people who have encounters with this force, like I think we're meant to feel that, what is his name? Easy Johnson? Easy Benson, yeah. He's easy, easy like... Jackster. <laughs> Good pull. <laughs> that these people who like have encounters with similar, you know, objects that Mitchell does, like are mostly like driven insane by it and might gain some of like hit the prowess that he gained as well. Like we see that she built the mechanical arm and then also yeah. easy Benson has the ability to communicate with machines, or but they he... don't talk back. <laughs> um, so he claims. Yeah. And, and so and we will that, see that these throughout... people are, are sort of driven mad by their communion with this, whatever force is causing this. Yeah. We will see throughout um, like further exploration of the idea that Mitchell's powers or the source of his powers are some way linked to an interdimensional force. Um, we'll see other characters interact with the either the like the symbol or, or whatever the source of his power is, um, and he pretty uniformly tends to be a best case scenario. <laughs> um, with varying results, uh, as we've seen, like the the girl on the subway just gouges her eyes out. Jackson's wife ends up with like some 
powers it seems but also is completely insane easy benson appears to have some it's 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 not really clear but he appears to have some like low-grade version of uh mitchell's powers but that reality also is having a uh negative effect on his (laughs) grasp on reality shall we say um yes and then we we also get the resolution to the gay marriage plotline where the wedding takes place and it's it's a very i like the conclusion of this a lot because it sort of it shies away very much from like giving easy answers even in the like comic book way of like well we did this good thing but it'll be costly yeah like but it was a long road but we did it yeah that he does it and then his chief of staff is like yeah and also the supreme court is gonna annul that and like congrats for the <laughs> the like thousands of people who are like standing by who are going to be disappointed as a result of this yes and like you've alienated the population yeah and they're, like, they're definitely like clear and realistic about the consequences of like 2004 endorsement of gay marriage 2002 endorsement of gay marriage even even um yeah and then Speaking we get back of gay icon snagglepuss sure and th- we get the conclusion that we had previously discussed with the uh, the reporter, his reporter friend, and the door shutting as he asked to come in. Yes, we also uh, in this arc got the introduction of uh, the, the the one of my favorite tropes, the boxing priest, <laughs> who is at the news conference uh, for where when Mitchell announces that he's going to be performing the ceremony on behalf of the catholic post something like that (laughs) yes it's like the catholic journal or whatever yeah uh and then when a luddite with a bow and arrow (laughs) attempts to uh assassinate uh mitchell he punches him out and says some like classic priest things (laughs) says like amen as he's punching the guy (laughs) in the face or something like that i feel like it and it might even be like a primarily a comics thing. It's probably a consequence of reading a lot of Daredevil. But I feel like the priest who boxes and like <laughs> is therefore chill and cool is a like commonly recurring uh, trope. And we have not seen the last of uh, the priest who boxes in this comic either. My goodness. Praise be. Whoopish <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Uh, we then get a one-off, a very, a bit of a strange one-off. I'm interested to hear. Yeah, this. Uh, th- yeah, you're talking about fortune favors. Yes, issue number eleven. So the big, the storyline of this. Is, well, we start with a sort of a flashback to nine eleven, which is something I think they talk about it either earlier or later. But the idea that like Mitchell was like flying around trying to save the people who were jumping from the collapsing tower. Yes, but was unable like like there were so many people that he was unable to save everyone, which is clearly something that still haunts him. Yeah. But the, but more importantly (laughs) is the fortune teller plot, which is about like how he is driving all of the fortune tellers out of town. (laughs) He's cracking the whip on uh, those charlatans, the fortune tellers and goes, yeah, goes to have a like intimate encounter with one who, warned like one of her clients off of going to work on september 10th or the following day on september 10th thus saving her life and who wants to basically appeals to hundreds like how can you believe that like anything is impossible being who you are how about now i just help you like next time i have a premonition i'll warn you yeah and there's there's a very there's a very funny part i i think this is intentional 
where it's sort of like he goes down he has this like little sanctum yes where in the basement where like no cell phones are allowed basically so he can like think properly yeah and then it's it's like someone is there in his sanctum and is asking him to reconsider and then her her face is like wreathed in shadow and she has like a very foreboding expression on her face while she says i'm the community coordinator to your call controller <laughs> which is a very funny bit uh it's good certainly but yes he he goes to the fortune teller he meets ali g who is her bouncer yeah. uh, i don't know what the deal is with that <laughs> it's truly impossible not to say it's ali g yeah it's it, it i can only agree i don't know if that's supposed to be like a joke or just like a little like like tony harris thought it would be funny to include it or what but yes her her cousin slash like front room bouncer is clearly ali g (laughs) of ali g in the house yes so yeah oh another thing is that so one of like her premonitions is that she like she says it appears you will disguise yourself again before your time in office is through. And then we get and a we shot get an of insanely cool <laughs> yes. <alternate> design <laughs> of a really cool costume where it's it's like he's it's very it's sort of noir. It's, very, it's almost uh, Spider-Man noir. I was going to say Lobster Johnson uh, is who I immediately thought of. I don't know what that is. I'll throw you a quick, uh, quick image for that. Lojo, as I call him, though. Yes, Lojo. But yeah, a very again, still still very steampunk inspired. Yes, very um, retro pulp hero sort of aesthetic yes he's like so he he has like a, a sort of like black face mask and like the bright green eye pieces he has the big gear on his chest but it's like a what What do you call those coats where they sort of like button on the side yeah it's I, like a, I don't it's know like a, it's, it's kind of a matrix coat it very much um reminds me of like uh like world war ii aviator or i don't know something along those lines sure I'm, now I'm just, I want to know what those side button codes are called. I've, of course, just blasted you, Lojo. Oblique button, maybe? Anyways, I'm looking at Lojo. Yep, he looks like that. <laughs> Anyways, so that yeah, was just, great design. <laughs> that was just cool. It sort of pops in. I'm, I imagine that doesn't go anywhere, but time um, alone no spoilers, will tell. no spoilers. Yes, and so, wait, is this, so is this something we're meant to understand directly that sort of like so what she says is like well you are you're hardly free of sin and she says i can see the curse you placed upon your own soul all those months ago is that something we are meant to know about or is no, she alluding to something that will be talked no, about no she is alluding to something that will be talked about later you may recall that also in issue one a representative of the governor's office comes yes. to him uh, to blackmail him about something that we don't yet know the details of. Those those are related items that we will learn more about as the series goes on. Okay, so he has some dirty laundry in his past. Is the short uh, the yeah. short answer? But yeah, so so what? Why 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 is this an issue? It just, confu- <laughs> I, it just confuses I, yeah, me. I don't. It's it's very odd. Uh, it's a bit of a a one off. I think the main thrust of it is. It, like it's a bit of a, a character piece where the ultimate point of it is 
he has like again another kind of great power great responsibility thing he carries like a huge burden on himself as a result of the people who he failed to save on 9-11 and and has like the perpetual feeling that he could have done more and then he has this encounter with this woman who he feels could have done more also and that she is making excuses for herself and so he walks away from it with like a deep sort like almost hatred for her um for failing to do more that is also like echoed in some of the like self-hatred for his failure to do as much as he felt like he could have and we saw it a bit in the last arc as well where jackson and george uh confronted him <laughs> about like why he didn't go to the pentagon and he's like i only found out about the pentagon an hour ago like i I'm already like racked with guilt about not being able to stop the first plane in the first issue as well. He says if he was a real hero, he would have been there in time to stop the first plane. Um, obviously unrealistic expectations uh, for Joe, civil engineer, to have had enough foreknowledge to be able to do something about 9-11. But, yes. uh, and he says he, he, could, he couldn't have flown to the Pentagon anyway. It's another yes. point he makes. But yes, it's, it's an interesting cut because I, I didn't really think it didn't really feel like much of a character piece or a character study for me because so much of it is just like her sort of like telling his fortune. And obviously that's like revealing character elements as well, but it's, it was, it, it just confused me yeah. largely like what it was meant to be communicating to us exactly. And why, like, because other than the first issue, everything, there haven't been any one-offs. It's been two, like five issue arcs. Yeah. And so it's just like, and now we're doing this. Like, this is like a very conscious break in momentum. Yeah, all for, of the... For like, this issue. This this whole chunk of issues from 11 to 16 is shorter stories all around. Yes. Well, so we get... So this is a, what, a four or three issue arc? Three issue. Yeah. So Fact V Fiction is the uh, the next... And that's a bit of a we get. that's a bit of a courtroom uh, reference for it's a bit of an illusion <laughs> to our legal eagles system. in the uh, house out there. Shout out to Jack Reed, um, <laughs> hater of the film Legal Eagles. Oh. <laughs> it's like, is he a listener? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Fingers um, crossed. Shout anyways. out to uh, Gavin LeBur. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Stiller. A lawyer who I hope will listen. <laughs> yeah. Let's just shout it out. Let's just take bets on who is listening to this episode. <laughs> but yeah, so the this is where we are introduced to the character of Ray, who is um, both apparently like Mitchell's chief counsel and also like his private detective. And, or yeah, am I just making like a that child. assumption? Uh, he's, he's not like, yeah, he's like his private counsel who also as part of his job <laughs> picks up his comics for him <laughs> he has like the energy of a hatchet man so yeah, yeah so what we learn is of. that they they knew each other from way back when and the big sort of conflict of this arc which is like never really resolved in a real way and again we it's a case of someone that we know is suspected to be doing something nefarious and it turns out to be a different person yes certainly uh von loves a good red herring yes he has been all over those so yes so they knew each other way back when and there is some sort of unspoken resentment from ray or i mean assumed spoken (laughs) (laughs) and also like it seems more assumed than anything else 
that over yeah. he felt a bit excluded that he wasn't let in on the secret of the great machine and that they like they ran that whole operation without him ever finding out about it despite being like mitchell's mitchell's childhood best friend and someone who also had like a close relationship with kremlin and who is like very keen to demonstrate his loyalty and commitment to mitchell right but the the central superhero plot of this arc is the automaton who is basically like a a, a great machine copycat yes who ostensibly presents himself i'll just say himself as (laughs) a robot built by the great machine yes who was built by the great machine who was essentially like carrying on his work Mm -hmm. um but also is like is performing like like is busting very like innocuous crimes like (laughs) he busts like a pro he busts the guy like for engaging in prostitution Mm -hmm. or you know it for soliciting he busts people for trespassing (laughs) yes (laughs) for yeah for squatting the one the one violent crime we see him attempt to intervene in turns out to be a police sting (laughs) (laughs) right trying to catch him and then the the very funny i it's it's kind of hard to tell sometimes which is the a plot which is the b plot because they tend to get pretty equal screen time yeah but this is an interesting one because it is it's mitchell is going to jury duty sort of as like a stunt and to he thinks uh well he's been challenged that if you want to like get from the system you have to give to the system so it's part kind of like peak of uh or fit of peak slash conscience and part like the press is gonna eat this up yes and which is a, a character we haven't talked about previously is the police commissioner mm-hmm. uh what is her name carla and is uh yeah commissioner and is how i primarily think of her <laughs> sure it's more of a last names book isn't yeah. it yeah but yes which is a character that's shown up a few times she is sort of like the voice of like law and order mm-hmm. and is frequently annoyed at mitchell's various extra legal yes doings and goings <laughs> on but yeah so he so he goes to jury duty it ends up being a case of uh fecal matter in a salad bar yeah a bag (laughs) a bag of human feces uh found at a salad bar this is also a funny like i like i like when they're going through like the voir dire process (laughs) and both sides are like the mayor he's a lock for us because like he loves small business like he's a huge consumer rights advocate yes the one the one side that the plaintiff says that he's a huge supporter of consumer rights so he's a slam dunk uh, and then the defense says he's a big backer of small business, <laughs> and so he's a lock. Um, but then, it, so so another trend that has sort of emerged in like the last two arcs is you have the A plot and the B plot, but the political plot also has like other. Well, I guess in the last one it was that the superhero plot had other elements going for it, but in this one it's the political plot that has more elements going for it which is the existence of easy benson <laughs> a truly wild character uh, he is a character indeed who his purpose behind all, he like gets himself onto jury duty with the mayor yeah um, he's got a real cheers from iraq energy <laughs> do you know about that yes i know about that <laughs> he just seems like the kind of guy who when he was in iraq <laughs> would have that. written hell yeah brother cheers from iraq <laughs> sure um do you want to hear something very funny yeah sure I've do only, i've only ever thought of that sentence as being 
from like an person, Iraqi person. An Iraqi. Oh. <laughs> That's, I have only ever thought of it as being an American. No, I think you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely right in retrospect, <laughs> which is very funny. It, it is funny to imagine it as an Iraq. A person well. from Iraq writing, hell yeah, for the Jewish morale. But yeah, so so the big, the whole Easy Benson thing is that he has. They allude to very directly to Gulf War syndrome, which is sort of what the idea of it is that he. He went to like an endless chasm. <laughs> yeah, like a bottomless pit. <laughs> and again, stared into the abyss and was <laughs> yes, empowered and, got, and driven mad by it. And got machinist's disease, mm-hmm. much like Mitchell. So, yes, like you say, he says that he is capable of talking to machines. And the way he puts it is, I can talk to machines, but they don't talk back. Mm-hmm. And he hears just like this horrible noise that like has driven him insane. Yeah. And he does it. So it's not really clear, but it seems that he has indeed manipulated the computer system at the court yeah. to allow him to be like entered into the jury selection process alongside 100. Yes. That's the thing that made me think like, I think it's very pretty directly because we have the whole scene of the woman like he goes up to the when he sees that mitchell hundred is at the courthouse he goes to the jury duty desk and is like hey can i volunteer for jury duty and she's like no but then the next time we see him he is like on the jury or part of the selection process well she says it's all decided by the computer and he's like the computer you say (laughs) exactly so i think we are meant to believe quite directly that he does have some kind of abilities yes i will say like, I, I agree, we are meant to believe it. We will also see, uh, no spoilies, but in a future issue, Mitchell will say of a, another character from Baghdad that, quote, he and I speak the same language, which seems to me to be another illu- or allusion to a character who may have encountered this mysterious chasm in Iraq and subsequently been granted some sort of uh, machine powers. Right. So Easy Benson takes a woman on the jury hostage when like they're in their deliberations and demands that Mayor Hundred like basically like repair him mm-hmm. with his powers. Uh, we aren't really privy to why he thinks that that's the case, but he well similar to uh, Mrs. Jarge, um, she he he seems to be like uh, have a, or have like a fixation on hundred possibly as a result of his like exposure to the force that gave him his powers that for whatever reason yeah and and the way he articulates it is like oh well the human body if you think about it is just like a really complicated machine so he should be able to fix me right the there's kind of a wild conclusion to this plot which is like so he he mitchell uses his abilities to like send out <laughs> guide uh, the hands of a sniper <laughs> well that as well but first he uses it to send out like a distress signal over yeah. the stock exchange and which causes like a swat team to arrive and then it, i which in what i think is a very cool moment it seems like he you he allows the scope of the sniper rifle yes. to see through his eyes he, is that he, what we are i'm not sure if it's that it i don't think it's that it exactly sees through his eyes because it seems like it's feeding accurate or accurate like perspective data that when the guy pulls the trigger he he has like the shot right. lined up yes so i think i think he he gives 
yeah, it's not it's not totally clear, but he gives the digital scope, which is a Some machine. Ability. <laughs> yeah, the an an in the room perspective that allows the sniper to like train the rifle on easy, and then he is then able to instruct the rifle to shoot once once he's like got easy acquired. Oh, you think that he fired the rifle? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I, I wasn't I think sure. He... I wasn't sure one way or the other. He, he says like, he says, "May God have mercy on your soul," and like his eyes are closed. And there is also like a large like target <laughs> emblem yeah. in the background. <laughs> so you know there there's some suggestions of it certainly. Um, Easy Benson gets his scalp blown off. Yeah, his eye pops out as we've discussed. His eye does do a little bit of a pop. <laughs> the old lady <laughs> understandably freaks out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is like we said a, a rather gnarly book. And then we get the so the the conclusion of the automaton angle. Uh, Bradbury and Kremlin are like off handling that which is why brad is not present for the hostage situation which is i will say a poor reflection on him yeah should probably accept his resignation there <laughs> <laughs> yes bradbury attempts to resign and mitchell refuses but the way that works out is we discover that it is in fact jared leto himself jared leto <laughs> jr the proprietor of the comic shop which has recently closed that they went to as kids Sold off to finance his activities as the automaton. Yes. And essentially, sort of like he, as is obviously the case, it's like he he wants to help people. He thinks that someone has to fill the void. He talks about Asriel (laughs) replacing Batman. (laughs) It is interesting that Kremlin like identifies it. Like he says the reason he figured it out after like they confront Ray. Uh, I do get confused having a character named Ray and then a different character named Bradbury, I, I have to say. <laughs> but they confront Ray and Ray is like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have nothing to do with this. Here's a copy of the first appearance of the Superman <laughs> robot, which I love. But yeah, so and then he says, like, I'd return it. But Leto sold his shop and Kremlin basically says, like, I figured it out because like you're trading one fantasy for another. It's just, It's interesting that like, he considers Leto, or sorry, Leto's, uh, like, desire to be a superhero and, like, fixation on, like, Mitchell as a superhero to be a fantasy, whereas, like, he sees their own time, which I think Mitchell kind of characterizes, and I think Vaughn would characterize as sort of, like, play-acting at being heroes as having been, like, a legitimate and valuable endeavor that they should, like, return to. Yeah, well, and it, it makes sense. It's, I mean, I think it's a bit of a I'm not wearing hockey pads kind of thing. Where right. You now, like, he's, he's not, not really the real Darth deal. Vader voice changer. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then, as I don't believe you we were recording when I first referenced this, but we, the conclusion is a flashback scene <laughs> to uh, everyone is working a real look in the scene. <laughs> yes, it's like. I guess, like, given the ages we're given, yeah, like they're around, like, 20. Oh, it's 1986. It's 1986, yeah. So, so Mitchell's around, like, 20 or so. Um, and they're at the comic shop, which is, like, now a comic-slash-skate shop. Um, Mitchell has crazy hair, a goatee, and an earring. Yeah. yeah. Ray is rocking the, like, shoulder-length hair and uh, and a little bit of scruff. <laughs> Leto Jr., of course, has his signature red beret. <laughs> <laughs> Raspberry beret, um, and you know they're, they're, there's a bit of you know metatextual talking about comics exiting continuity yes but of course the the great and by and i do put great in quotation marks that 
Truth ended when they shot MLK. <laughs> the American way died over in Vietnam. And justice, shit, man, there's no justice. There's just us. It, it is like we used to have Bob Hope, Steve Jobs, and <laughs> yeah. Johnny Cash level. <laughs> I was thinking it's realize, realize, realize level. <laughs> uh, yes, I do also like that uh, Leto's The Comic Shop is like the number one booster of Wildstorm titles. <laughs> A lot of Wildstorm comics on the shelf uh, down, at, down at Leto's. Leto's Emporium slash um, skate yeah. shop. <laughs> Right. So I think we're we're on to the last arc now. Yes, Is there anything else final... you wanted to say about fact v fiction? Uh no, it's a it's kind of a fun one off that uh you know, I think all three of these stories are are like entertaining, but not like critical in the grand scheme of sort of the the overarching story. Yeah. It's it's sort of why ish where like the first I think with why it's like the first fifteen issues so like pretty much through the like space arc and i guess even the space arc you could say is fairly self-contained but that you sort of get like the ground setting first few arcs and then like you get into stuff that's a little more self-contained and like does matter to the overarching story but maybe not quite as much yeah it's like it's a uh, it's world building it's character building it's like kind of keep them keep them coming back keep keep telling entertaining yeah, it's stories also like yeah it's just good <laughs> Uh, but yeah, then we get on to the last arc of the story, which I feel, uh, or of the issues that we're covering today, which I think is the weakest, my own I would self. Agree with that for sure. Uh, and that is entitled. Uh, uh, it's of course called Off the Grid. Right. Because that's where he goes. <laughs> exactly. It's it's really a, a Mitchell and his mom story. We have previously seen her only in the flashbacks, um, primarily of his childhood. We don't really, like, I don't think we've ever seen her during the Great Machine days. No, we haven't. And we don't know anything about his dad either. We maybe know that he died young, but... I, we we know that just from or, or that he wasn't like present in Mitchell's upbringing. Yes, we see that. Yes, certainly that his dad is not in the picture. Yeah. Um. So his and so his mother calls and says she's in a bad way. Mitchell traces the call in like a very <laughs> fun scene. Yeah. I although I don't get like it ends on congratulations, which I was like, huh? Right. Yes, I think that's sort of like congratulations. <laughs> You know, like it's the uh -huh. phone. It's the phone congratulating him on having found the answer. Sure. So we, he says, call Trump and tell him I'm catching in my favor. <laughs> so what favor did he do to Donald Trump oh. that has caused him to now be in possession of Donald Trump's you know, goodwill? It is telling that Donald Trump owes him a favor after like a month in office or two months in office, whatever. Well, it's like March. Maybe he saved him maybe isn't there isn't there like quite a quite a like donald trump claims to have been somewhere on 9-11 and people are like no you weren't oh right yes he's he's like he says he was like yeah he says like he was like walking around november 2002 is when it's set so some in his first year in office he has done something to uh ingratiate himself to donald trump I think we can safely assume that it's probably something related to like greasing the wheels for some sort of property development or, you know, something along those lines. 
Right. He says, soon after, this is real life, to be clear. Uh Soon after, I went down to Ground Zero with men who worked for me to try to help in any little way that we could. We were not alone. So many others were scattered around trying to do the same. They were all trying to help. In the hours after the attacks, he gave an interview to a local New York radio station. He said if he were president, he'd be taking a very, very tough line in response. (laughs) Oh, yes. There's also the the classic claim that, like, his building was now the tallest building in New York City now that the towers are down. That might be what I'm thinking of. Which was also not true. I've heard of the stars are down, but this? (laughs) Certainly. But, yes, this all starts out... I apparently... He's unable to get. Oh no, he does. He does take the cross country flight, right? Yeah, and then, then visits he... Rent a Hog. <laughs> yes, to... that's what I wanted to get to. It's <laughs> the motorcycle rental store Rent a Hog. Uh, as I said before, he does my favorite move with Wario in Smash Brothers, which is ride his hog across the map. <laughs> Certainly. Um, oh, another thing I wanted to mention about this arc is starting on the cover of issue fifteen, I believe. We get the. And I'm sure this is something that you are, will be talking about shortly. We get a large logo on the top of the issue that says 2005 Eisner Award issue on the like original cover art. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a, yeah, pre- little bit of a tease spoilies. there. <laughs> yes. So he gets on his rent-a-hog. <laughs> he, oh, and also like his, like the helmet he uses is his great machine helmet but, like, stripped of some of the great machininess of it, so it's, like, just a motorcycle helmet Yes, again. he takes off, like, the, like, firefly visor, visor thing. <laughs> yeah. Um. So he goes to a trailer where his mom is, like, shocked up with a guy with a katana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the last samurai, as, uh, <laughs> as Mitchell calls him. It's alluded to that both of his parents are alcoholics, yeah, which is something we've known for a while now. Yes, I believe he declines uh, at a dinner with uh, Jackson, the, with the Jarge family, Jarge. Uh, with Monsieur Jackson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he declines a drink as uh, as both his parents are quote friends of Bill W. But yes, so so she is off the wagon. She's the basically the the overarching storyline of this is her mother is like living with some deadbeat guy who is being harassed by the local mayor (laughs) and mitchell runs them off the end yes um well i mean let's not get ahead of ourselves uh he calls george w bush a decent man yeah well i mean (laughs) he and ellen are in the same camp (laughs) that one (laughs) and i'd like to go on the record and call ellen a decent woman so yeah you you agree with her managerial style most of all right (laughs) You're you're into Ellen as a businesswoman. <laughs> I don't agree with everything Ellen does personally, but as a yeah, business you don't leader, agree with her life choices, but you as love a her as a businesswoman. You can't deny her success. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Um, another also another very crucial element of this uh, of this series is that we find out that his mother killed his father yeah oh yeah (laughs) he did gloss over that yes Uh, and this i mean this is i guess thematically important because his father being like dead dead at a young age uh the the official story is that he died in a cave-in because he was a minor yeah and and mitchell kind of views him (laughs) he was at a young age but not that young an age Mm, um 
Yes, Mitchell Mitchell has always kind of viewed him as a hero who like did what he had to do for his family and sacrificed to make sure that like he and his mother were provided for. Uh and she she reveals that in fact he was violent with her question mark with him. Um and so to protect them both when he attacked her one night she <laughs> caved his skull in with a uh, fire like poking Fireplace iron. Poker. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. And, and which like tying into like the the perception of heroes and and her little spiel that we talked about before we started recording about Atticus Finch when she <laughs> prophesied ghosts at a watchman like that that kind of deconstruction of someone's heroic myth I think when you like tying into the the whole theme of the series being about like viewing politicians as heroes and what does it mean to be a hero in a post 9/11 world and can someone can someone be less than perfect and still be a hero are all all kind of questions that the series certainly asks and this story sort of dances around yeah i also like the 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 revelation that not only did his mother kill his father but then like worked with his co-workers (laughs) yeah his his, like it seems very unlikely that like his buddies are like well he's dead like i'm gonna help you out now like the person Uh, who killed him it's a kind of screenwritery thing i feel like that they're like semi-plausible like we know he wasn't perfect and we know that like you know you did what you had to do and he would want you taken care of and like you know it right even even like we see his like dying words are like that a girl that, yeah that you know i think i think again it, it ties into the like it's it's tough for i think us as readers given that the only thing we see of him is him like staggering in drunk to like choke his wife right but i think the sense that we're meant to have of him is that in his in his sober moments he would regret that behavior and that ultimately his desire is for his like wife and kids to be taken care of and the kids who like know him best uh, or the his his like friends who know him best know that that's true and so they do what they need to do to make sure that that's what happens yes she describes him as saying like he was good nine days out of ten mm-hmm. but on the one which you know is a little <laughs> a little flippant but you know i guess it's her life that's also like it's a little I don't love it feels like a very comics thing and like usually it's like with like the per, the parent that's like training the person to be a superhero or whatever like t- training giving them ninja skills or whatever mm-hmm. that like they'll be like horribly abusive and then like when it's like <laughs> well in this example he's getting killed but then he's like right. good job like, like I, my, I taught you, you this yeah, you learned my lessons well yeah it's like fuck you dude <laughs> <laughs> but yes and so so she says that she has like chosen to do this now and sort of brought also like brought him out here not only because of the weird mayor but because like she sees all these assassination attempts going on and says like you've been trying to live your life for two men and like you don't have to be risking your life to accomplish everything so to speak mm-hmm. uh which is interrupted by the arrival of timberwolf <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, <laughs> so, a guy with some great tattoos. Him and his two buddies roll uh, the dice. Yes, Timberwolf has a uh, roll the dice with a gendered slur on it, with a picture of dice. And then the other guy on his arm has a tattoo of a four leaf clover with the caption "Fuck you, I ain't Irish." <laughs> uh, and 
I think we know which order uh, we got those in. I will say, so when Timberwolf rolls up and reveals, uh, he has not yet revealed that he's the mayor, but his friends are revealed to be the like sheriff and deputy question mark they both have badges that say sheriff but anyways <laughs> timberwolf pulls open his like leather vest as if he also is revealing a badge but it's obscured by a text <laughs> bubble do you think there's something under there or, or that he's just weirdly flashing no, i think he's sort of like just gesturing like he's he's already holding on to like the his lapel and he's like my buddy's here and like gestures without letting go yeah i i see what you mean like it is he is opening his jacket as it if looks he like, like he should also a have a badge or... there but it's yes. obscured by a text bubble you're correct i will say i didn't notice that um anyway so yes the good the, it's a great reveal that he's the mayor <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm iffy on it <laughs> i think it, I, it it's a funny joke it's certainly. it's kind of funny and like i don't know it's yeah I'm, I'm iffy on that particular element i think it's one of the reasons that this story as a whole i'm kind of like uh, and then he goes and confronts like a bad mayor <laughs> <laughs> yes um and then he like basically like threatens him Dares him, him to shoot him in the face with his shotgun, basically. Yes. Calls him a slur, which is like also like very rampant in this book, is just like throwing out slurs and like it's it's again, we've talked about this before, but like it's like putting slurs in the mouths of contemptible characters in order to make them seem more contemptible. Yeah, except he also <laughs> puts them in the mouth of like Mitchell yes. here. Yes. Which, you know, I think is again like he's taking on the role of a or the persona of like someone contemptible, but yes, he, he so is then, trying to agitate uh, Tim yes. Wolf certainly, but still, still a choice. And then we get this bizarre reveal, which, if <laughs> if this is the case, then like I feel like it needs to get like paid off or like brought back again down the line. That so the bit the whole thing, the reason that he like agitates them this way, are you doing runts? M and M's. Sure. The whole reason that he is behaving this way is because he has like you know, communed with the guns as he's wont to do, and they have told him that they weren't loaded. And then he like fires it at the ground. They it expecting fires. expecting a click, of course. Yes. Yeah. Classic. Um it fires and then he says, I don't understand. This thing told me it was empty, to which his mother replies, it lied. Sooner or later everybody does, which is what she says about her like killing his father. But like I like I get it for thematic purposes but that's like a somewhat crazy thing to reveal no uh yeah i can't remember if this gets paid off or not i think like it i don't think that it's necessarily like so so crazy insofar as like that's not how his powers should work so much as it's like if that's the case then why do machines do what he tells them if they apparently are like at some level have like independent thought <laughs> and yeah, like it's just like are not are not compelled to like they don't they don't have like a true like i can't remember if it's in one of these issues or one of the upcoming issues he references like the computer system idea of like master and slave and no, and like i haven't seen that it's it seems like he basically has like a master slave relationship with all machines except that apparently these ones can lie to him so like also like what why would the machine want to lie 
like other than that it's like an it's, instrument it's loyal that is being to, wielded by it's loyal to timberwolf <laughs> his master timberwolf and yeah i think like my issue is less that like that's weird and more just like that has very broad implications for like the nature and like viability of his powers like yes and also it's just like if you can no longer trust like what the machines are saying to you like wouldn't that be like wouldn't that sh- rattle yeah, you a little I, bit? I do feel like that would that especially like just discovering it at this point in the present day i would feel like well i guess i'm never using my powers again yeah it's like i it's like oh i can clearly never trust anything a machine tells me again yeah but it's, it's very strange it is but, uh, yeah it is definitely i think going for like the um it's more of a the thematic. thematic bullet yeah but uh but it does raise troubling questions about his powers certainly yes and then we conclude it with something that like is mentioned only very briefly at the beginning of the first issue about people shooting a documentary about the water tunnel. Yes. And then he closes it with the great line that everything else is just water under the bridge as they look at the water <laughs> under the, the water bridge. Under that bridge. So yeah, I mean, we can talk about your... Uh... <laughs> My corner? <laughs> yes, we can go to your corner. I, I was just going to say, like, I, I like this quite a bit. Like, I mean it's it's got a bit of it's got some flaws to it certainly like yeah I think it's not perfect but uh it sort of retreads the same plotting grounds a few times which is sort of like what i've referenced today that they tend to have like this a b and you know there's the assassination attempts and there's the red herring and all that stuff but overall i think it's really strong like i i like the central premise of the book a lot like i i, I really like the political stuff by and large like it doesn't seem all that dated to me yeah that was uh that was the stuff i was most concerned about (laughs) coming back to was like that again the things that i remember are like the the lincoln painting a forthcoming uh like the the gay marriage plot and the forthcoming story on like marijuana use and just being like boy these sure are like (laughs) you know 2004 era like hot button topics yes that i i wasn't sure how it was gonna have aged especially since i haven't read this series in like probably close to 10 years and i and i was pleasantly surprised like i think it was probably well handled for the time it certainly i think has aged well um as kind of like a a time capsule of Mm -hmm. of like the the political discourse of the 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 period and then yeah for for like the superhero stuff i think is all like really good i think the like the interdimensional element of it is part of what really appeals to me like i think it's it it just gives it like this injection of kind of like horror and weirdness that is is like very different from any of the other stuff we've really seen from him to this point and that i think really um sets sets ex machina apart from the kind of like genre side of things and then i think the characters are just generally like less annoying to be frank than than the kind of like typical vanian mold i think they benefit from mostly being like 30 and older <laughs> and yeah so therefore therefore like being adults and and having a little bit more maturity about them and even like journal as the kind of like token young character is sort of like wise beyond her years so she also manages to avoid like kind of falling into that mold yeah i, th- I think it just shows like the lessons that he has learned over the course of his career up to this point in in a way that is like 
I don't know. It just is very realized. Like it comes out fully formed and to hold it up next to ultimate X-Men and be like, these came out a month apart from each other. I'm like, huh, (laughs) that seems crazy because to me, ultimate X-Men is like, like retrograde from why the last man and almost seems like he's headed back towards like swamp thing type work. Mm -hmm. I was about to say no shade to swamp thing, but shade to swamp thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Oh my God. Whereas like, Ex Machina, I feel like, is the start of not the maybe not the start, but I feel like he's like reaching his apex with the the stuff that he's doing in Ex Machina, and then the the stuff that will follow immediately once once that book wraps. Yeah, and I, I'm not what's what's contempt. I didn't look up this time what is like contemporaneous with why, but presumably it's like the same thing where you know, he's around, like, issue, like, 40 or something like that. Like, he's getting towards the close of Y. Uh, it's, like... It's, it's closer than you'd think. I think Safe Word comes out this year. Um, oh, really? So, like, okay. 18 to 20 for that one. Okay. Certainly, the like... The same year as number one, you mean? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so that's that's sort of what I meant. Like, by, by issue 15, then, yeah. like... It's, it's, like, yeah, roughly 15 to 20 issues ahead. He is writing... <laughs> his nomination for best writer at the 2005 eisners is specifically for why the last man x machina and runaways no mention of ultimate x-men <laughs> which he is writing at this point but yes we've we've talked about his uh, individual awards i think fairly extensively um x machina is is kind of the bell of the nominations ball number one is nominated for best single issue loses to eight ball number 23 uh, which is the death race story by dan close state of emergency is nominated for best serialized story competing against safe word they both lose to fables uh march of the wooden soldiers it is nominated and wins for Best New Series over Astonishing X-Men, Doc Frankenstein by the Wachowskis, and Shaolin Cowboy by Jeff Darrow. Uh, and it is also nominated for uh, Best Continuing Series, also against Why the Last Man, Stray Bullets, and Astonishing X-Men, and loses to The Goon, a series that uh, I have long wanted to read and never have. Well, you're a big Jay Baruchel fan. Yeah, love him. Love um, Stifler. That's who plays uh, is that, the titular is that goon, right? I think I gotta so. Watch goon. <laughs> I just watched. Did I tell you about how I just watched all the American Pie films. No, is that why you also were recently brushing up on Chris White's filmography? <laughs> I just yes, it was. <laughs> wow, it is Sean William Scott and Liev Schreiber. Fast. Yeah, stuff. he's like the the goon on the other team, I believe. The anti goon. Yeah. Um, if, if we can go back briefly, <laughs> I just, I wanted to, uh, respond to a couple of things you raised. Um, with respect to the superhero stuff, the one thing that I really, I didn't know what his powers were. I just thought that he, like, I thought, I think I thought he had like a super suit. And so it's right, cool. like an Iron Man-esque very, character. Yes. And so it's very cool to me that like his powers are like more integrated into his whole deal. And also like. His powers are obviously ones that can be very useful outside of a superheroic context. Yeah, and, and, and in so some think, ways are like not very useful in a superheroic context. Yes, uh, and so that's definitely a very interesting element of it to me. In terms of the political stuff, I think you know, obviously, I think the sort of centrism and both sidesism has certainly fallen out of favor mm-hmm. in recent years. But I think it works for this book because like. 
I think it's willingness to present nuance and present like like you like as you described it, good faith arguments on both sides of the issues is part of what allows it to like not have age boy because like even even what would be like a liberal or a left wing take on something at a, at that given time like those don't always hold up as like being great yeah because like, it can be like you know like there were people on the left i mean like obama is famous for like changing his stance on gay marriage after the fact and things like that and so i think like having that broadness of a political spectrum is part of what allows it to like come across as better than it might yes in in a, in a modern reading yeah but anyways what are the rewards <laughs> uh jd mettler the colorist uh was nominated for best coloring which uh what, what sure. I, i'm not sure if you have thoughts on the coloring it's very um like expressive in some ways and one thing that i found interesting was to look at like tony harris's pencils because there is like there's art galleries in the backs of the trades that i have um and i also have his art book which includes a section on ex machina that is like similarly a lot of like process stuff and a lot of like pencils versus finished versions but i thought it was a jd mettler thing that like the the coloring is kind of like almost gradienty at times it seems like you can it's it's just like very it's obviously it's very different from like the flat coloring but like skin tones especially will often have like two or three tones that are kind of like in stark contrast like i'll hold up for you so you can see sort of what i'm talking about like you can see hopefully on that reporter's face like the sort of two-tone thing that i'm yeah, talking so there's about a lot of it's it's a lighting thing yeah yeah it, that's a, that's a good way of putting it like the he's it's it's very particular about like showing where the light source is coming from and yes I, shadows i thought that was uh like a jd mettler thing but when you look at harris's like process pieces and the pencils he's got that stuff like shaded in in the the line work and like and and it like gets inked in at points as well so like it's it's weird in that I'll sh- I'll try and hold up again one of these like process pages, but it's such that like in the pencil work when it's not colored and like after it's inked, sometimes the characters look like their skin is like made of metal because <laughs> it's like pre, it's it's already got that that lighting effect in it, so it makes them look like kind of shiny when they don't have <laughs> any colors right. applied. So and obviously nothing against JD Mettler. He's a he's a great colorist. I'm pretty sure Harris like specifically chose him to work on the book with him. But I was I was interested and surprised to see the extent to which like those lighting decisions are built into Harris's line work. And like not that's not like totally unique per se, but he does it in a way that just looks to my eye very different from some of the other um like pre-color stuff that I've seen from other artists. Yeah. Yeah, the one thing that I found really interesting, and this was just from paging through while we were recording, was um, in issue 16, which is the issue that has like the flashback to his mother killing his father and all that stuff. Like, so you go from like artificial like lamplight to like firelight in the scene when in when he's being killed, and then you go to like harsh sunlight. And so I thought it was interesting how like you can really see the difference in the way. And again, like, I don't know if that's a coloring thing or an inking thing or what, but you can like, it's very visible the way that like the different light sources affect the way that 
the characters are, are lit or are colored. Yeah. I suspect that it's probably in part a product of the like whole photo reference thing. Like I think when he's staging the photos that he's going to take, he takes the lighting of the scene into account. And so when he's using those reference photos as like the basis for what he's working on, it's, it gives him a bit of a guide to include that sort of like dynamic lighting. To return to the awards talk briefly, <laughs> over at the Harveys, uh, Ex Machina was nominated for Best New Series uh, and lost to Michael Chabon Presents The Amazing Adventures of the Escapist, the uh, Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay spinoff comic, uh, which Vaughn would eventually take over and write also. And then in 2006, remaining a, uh, a popular pick, um, Fortune Favors, number 11, was nominated for Best Single Issue. Lost to Solo Number 5 uh, by Brian K. Vaughn. Fact V Fiction was nominated for Best Serialized Story. Again, competing against himself, Paper Dolls also nominated. Both lose to uh, Fables again for Return to the Homelands. Ex Machina. Fables is really cleaning up. Yeah, like. Fables, Fables is uh, going strong at this stage. Nominated for Best Continuing Series. Lost to Astonishing X-Men. Uh, he gets another Best Writer nomination and loses to Alan Moore. No shame in that. And Tony Harris gets a Best Cover Artist nomination, uh, mm. which he loses to James Jean, who is doing the Fables covers at that point and apparently also did a few Runaways covers. I think that must be in the post, uh, post-Vaughn days, because I do not recall him doing any covers for the Vaughn era. Which uh, yeah. he's, I don't know if you've ever seen it, like, I'm, you've seen Fables covers. James Jean is like quite yeah. a, he's a very distinct artist, especially like amongst comics, uh, like cover artists. He He's like primarily a fine artist and his work definitely like stands out on the shelf. So I, I feel like if he had done Runaways covers, I would remember it. But right. Yeah. The thing that um, it's interesting because I, I don't really think of the covers of this as being like particularly something to write home about exactly, you know, like, yeah, I mean, also like, because usually like, I think the kinds of covers that usually grab me are ones that sort of like have like a bit to them. I mean, issue 16, it has like the sort of like his comic on it. <laughs> that's yeah. like the comic that Mitchell Hunter <laughs> wrote. Well, that's a good one. Um, but yeah, usually it's just like, it's either like, just like him, like in some kind of pose that's like relevant to the storyline or yeah i think uh, i think it's tougher like when the artist like the interior artist is also doing the covers like that's that's a big time draw and you know like dif- different artists will approach covers differently i feel like in general harris's covers are more focused on a like capturing a lot of the cast um or, mm. and like the people who are relevant to the story and b like more like setting the tone as opposed to like having like being a an, any kind of like thematic statement on the contents of the issue or uh like having a bit per se i think i think in general he's more just trying to get like some some appealing cover art that yeah sort of just gets you ready for what's inside yeah they tend to be quite literal like for example like the fortune favors issue it's like it's him in his costume in the foreground and then like the fortune teller and some tarot cards in the background like you can easily see like an alternate version where it's like he is a tarot card yeah and like done definitely. in that art style something like that like it, it tends to be more literal and more just like here's the guy like a yeah. lot of the covers i think are like 
almost indistinguishable. Like I'm looking at issue nine, like the cover is literally just him in his costume posing. Um, but you know, they look good. Like I think his art looks very good. Certainly. Yeah. He, uh, for the covers, he like, I think inks himself and colors it. Like he does, he does, uh, most of the like post pencil stuff in Photoshop. Um, but he does like the full, the full art detail. Kiel? Well, is there anything? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I needed a second to burp there. Uh-huh. Uh, is there anything else that needs uh, discussing for this week? <laughs> uh, I do not believe so. Well, cheers. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> going out on a high note. <laughs> we always do. We know how to close them. That's what we've always Absolutely. said. Absolutely, we're kind of the Brian K. Vons of podcasting. <laughs> I'm sort of the. Um, uh, uh, let me just quickly check some information here. This is going I'm sort seamlessly. Of the, uh, I'm a bit of a, uh, come on, come on, come on. I'm a bit of a R- Ricky Roma. Who's that? Uh, the, one of the central characters in Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Oh. Is he I the one do... who closes? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that information for you. But someone says to all, I believe Alec Baldwin, wait, hold on, now I need to check the movie version. He's, uh, he's Al Pacino's character. Okay, well, I need Blake. I think Blake is the one who says to always be closing. And that coffee and is And I'm for seeing closers. here, yes, I'm seeing here that there is no character named Blake in the play. <laughs> <laughs> Roma is in contention for a prize to be awarded for the top closer at his firm. Well, there you go. So that's me. But I <laughs> believe like. uh, I believe he loses. That's also me. That's also me. Uh, <laughs> I'm a bit of a uh, Jackson George of podcasting. <laughs> in that you will soon be dead. In in that I believe uh, that I've wasted my time and it will soon drive me mad with guilt. <laughs> we duct tape in the windows. Yeah. Buying hazmat suits. But thank you all for listening so much. We do appreciate it. Uh, don't remember, don't remember <laughs> to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, I don't think we need a verb for this week. I think that's sufficient. Yeah. Um, you know, five, I, I've heard that five stars is quite good. It's the highest rating they award, unless you're Roger Ebert, in which case, you know, five stars would be even crazier. Imagine if Roger Ebert, <laughs> one Roger time Ebert was came, like five stars. Yeah. Roger Ebert came back from the grave to give us five stars. Imagine. A la... Dave Meltzer giving Kenny Omega versus Kazuchika Okada in the Tokyo Dome six stars. But I do also recall that uh, in honor of Deuces to the World, we specifically requested two star ratings. Uh, so feel free to give those. And of course, we Please. know we yes. know that that's the only reason anyone would give us two stars. And so if we see it, it means that you listened and loved it. Yes. Please keep piling those on. We're seeing a spike in them lately, which means that our listeners are loving it and are doing our work. So thank you for that. Um, well, I, I feel like we in every episode we think of another ending bit and then <laughs> and then invent a new one for the next episode. Do we? But that will have to wait for next episode because until next time to, to be, be continued. continued. All right, goodbye everyone. Stop this.